Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this special episode, Nick Sherrod of Label Sessions talks to Anna Felt and Daniel Pepe. This comes from a discussion on a clip from our previous podcast with John Wilshire, tackling the topic of thirsty generalism, as he coined, in the workplace. This grew to our guests thinking about how generalism can be applied to healthcare, more specifically primary care, and the lessons from primary care for startup founders. So, here we are. Be sure to listen to John Mulsh's podcast if you haven't already, but for now, over to Anna, Dan, and Nick. Welcome, lovely to have have you on, happy to talk about this thing, which is a whole podcast that comes from a LinkedIn comment that I think was really sparked by the phrase, thirsty generalism i think that was the thing that sort of sparked the sparked yeah. the whole thing and for some reason dan and i thought when she saw the phrase thirsty generalism this would be a you thing so that's that says something about your two relationship i think we go back we go back a long a long ways it probably has something to do with the fact that i texted anna what i thought my superpower was the week before and said i finally figured it out anna i said i'm a generalist so that's what i am and then your podcast came out the week after and i think that's why you tagged me and why did you well, why did you see the phrase thirsty generalism and then reach out to Dan or tag Dan? Well, I think in the work that Dan and I have been fortunate enough to do together, it's really opened my mind in terms of the scope of general medicine. And and that phrase just stuck with me, like the opportunity from a generalist point of view, because my whole world is is experience design and, and working with people often that are very siloed, very deep knowledge in very small silos. And I kind of joke and say, I'm a jack of all trades and mastering some. So I too self-identify perhaps with that phrase, but not in a medical context. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I thought it was really interesting because so much of the content that we do at Label Session stays inside a company. And one of the things that's always interesting in that context is people, when they're going through who they want to run sessions with, tend to go for specialists in a particular thing. So there's a thing I'm looking to do. So I'm going to reach out to, or I want to speak to other or specialists that have a bit of a specialism I don't have, and that'll be the journey. But actually, most of the value comes from when you can convince someone to do a left field conversation because there's connections that people don't generally don't generally make. But one of the things that was interesting when you were, well, when you, partly by tagging Dan, Dan, I mean, medicine, of all the areas of knowledge is the most kind of organized that you might come across and kind of focused on specialism and things. So this, and you know, this was a post, it was John Wilshire's post, I think, wasn't it, Josh, that, that, that kind of sparked all of this. So it comes from a very much kind of brand and marketing background, which is, I guess, more the classic area of generalists and kind of valuing generalism. But I mean, so, so I mean, generalism is, is, is it not a dangerous idea in medicine? This is not feel like this is a classic area of the specialist. Canada is interesting because a lot of our access to care relies on the generalist. You need access to primary care for that assessment to then go and see a specialist versus other countries where you can just say, I think I have a heart problem. I'm going to call the cardiologist. My stomach hurts. I'm going to call the gastroenterologist. In Canada, we really rely on generalism. I think it's the same in the UK where primary care does have that kind of gatekeeping function. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily dangerous. I think when generalism is done well, you often get to the answer much faster than by tackling and talking with multiple specialists because a specialist only has their lens, their set of tools, you know, they've got their screwdriver and their hammer. They don't have the full tool belt. And so there may be something that someone says or someone does in passing, or I see them walk in and I go, oh, that's, 
that's the problem there. And I can spot it honestly, just based on a gut feeling. People will ask me, how did you know? And be like, I don't know. I've just seen that pattern, that pattern twigged something in my brain. And, and as Anna and I have become friends and kind of grown and ping stuff off of each other, I know it's the same for her too, where there is a, a pattern. There's a set of things that the generalist sees and can quickly route and solve that problem. And I think Nick, your comments around the everyone, when you want to have a talk or you want to dive deep within a company or within medicine, you find the sub sub specialist or the person who knows, you know, that very narrow piece of knowledge and you want them to, to share their knowledge. But as I've grown in my career, and I've only been in medicine for five years, the more generalists I talk to and the more broad I go outside of medicine, the more I actually learn about medicine. And, you know, the latest thing for me is listening to April Dunford and her podcast on uh, positioning. And I've realized that positioning is exactly what we do in medicine because you have a problem and I have a series of solutions from eat better, lose weight, take Tylenol, take Advil, let me do a joint injection or you need surgery. And what I do is I know that patient and what I'm doing is I'm positioning. I'm positioning what I think is the best for that. And I never dawned on. And so as I listen to these podcasts, I'm like, shit, that is very applicable to what we do. And so what have I started doing? I've started using jolt selling techniques in my office to actually take people from indecision to decision or just help them recognize their indecision and, and say, go away and think about it. So the, the broader you can be and the more things you can tap on, it's just, it's very cool. And it takes these wicked problems that we think of wicked problems as doctors, because we have a very narrow skill set and just cracks open a whole new level of solution. So this is why I love texting Anna all times of the day and night, because there's just so much knowledge. And I've, I've been addicted to listening to label sessions. I've listened through the whole rack because there's nuggets in each little podcast. Never thought about that. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's fascinating too. The things that are really apparent to someone in one area that are not apparent to somebody else. And equally, without getting too kind of sort of futurism focused, whatever, it's an interesting thing right now on the basis of if the thing you're looking to do, you literally just need a logical application of things, then you pretty much well as well get in a chatbot to do it, AI, whatever else. If you actually need a human, you need them to be able to spot a pattern that you haven't spotted before. It's an interesting thing as to how we think about, think about ourselves. So... I want to get into these lessons for startups in a second. Just quickly, though, as a bit of context for people listening. Uh, you, Anna and Dan, you've actually been, how did you get to know each other? And you've been doing projects and things. So give us a bit of the 101 on on how that all happened and, and what they are. Sure. So um, we came together uh, as a part of a provincial um, change in direction. So the provincial government said before the pandemic, we think the right way to deliver medicine is more agile, it's more local based. We need to download some of the decisioning to local geographies and not kind of run it command and control from the top of the province. And so in order to do that, they developed these organizations called Ontario Health Teams where there would be the hospital, people adjacent to the hospital, community organizations and patients all kind of coming together and trying to identify a patient population they wanted to solve for and trying to figure out how we do this outside the hospital. So doing it inside the hospital is one way to do it. It's the most expensive way to do it. Probably not the best way to do it often, but how do we kind of reimagine that patient journey and bring other people into the table and have it be more collaborative? So I was the patient partner. Dan was one of the, the general medicine providers and we really clicked and it was like, oh, this is really interesting. This doctor is really interested in tech. Like, I think I got a lot to learn from him. I think the feeling was mutual. 
And very quickly into the pandemic, we kind of met maybe once, Dan, or twice in person. Once. Coffee? <laughs> we, had, <laughs> we had coffee and then boom, the pandemic hit. Um, and where we really kind of worked very closely together was recognizing, and I think the only way it could have worked as well as it worked was if Dan and I together. So immediately we looked at what the problem of how do we take COVID screening? So at that time, we didn't have enough COVID tests. If we remember back to those crazy days, did not have enough COVID tests. So we needed to figure out what patients should get what tests and why. Um, and how do we do that in a system that before COVID public health was clipboards and, you know, STIs and not necessarily scaled to do something like this. And immediately me, the technologist is like, listen, we need a software solution to like try to get data and figure this out and like manage a big picture. And Dan was like, okay, but no, we need to build this clinical workflow so that we understand like acuity and who gets what test. And so we kind of divided and conquered. Dan went off and got like a couple hundred doctors in the middle of the pandemic to agree to our crazy plan, which I don't even know how he did that. And I went to a very senior government official and said, I like need a significant amount of money like this week. <laughs> Which also is kind of a crazy thing to try to ask for. Um, but I think Wonder Twin Powers Unite, I think, you know, Dan's influence within the physician community is knowledge of kind of this clinical workflow. Me going, this solution could work. We just need to like move it a little bit like this and get it funded. And we were very lucky to have a lot of support in order to do it. Um, and then I think for me, at least, Dan, that like cemented this whole the only way we're going to solve these problems is if we have multiple people, many of whom are generalists, not all, but many, to really think about how this stuff works together in order to get to an outcome. Not to go like, well, I'm the genius because I have the PhD and we're going to do it my way. Or not me saying, you guys are all crazy. You have this ancient tech. How the hell do you ever expect to scale this thing? But rather approach it with kind of a humility to say, I know these three or four things. I don't know these four things four or five things. You do that. I'll do this. We'll come together. Um, and then we'll have something that actually works for everyone. Fascinating. Fascinating. As, an, as this is an example of doing well, it, it's, it's interesting because I was about to say in really tough circumstances, but perhaps that kind of way of working would never have happened if there wasn't in a crisis moment. If it wasn't like this thing COVID happens, none of it would have been allowed to happen, right? The kind of, that's the weird platform those things create. Okay, so let's 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 dive in. So this came off. There was a LinkedIn comment thread. We talked about thirsty journalists, and then someone said, "Hey, there's so many lessons from the world of primary care for startups." And you went, "Yeah, yeah, obviously." And and we whoever was on the social that day was like, "That sounds an interesting conversation." So uh, there are lots of startup founders who listen to this. There's also lots of people who are starting up a new thing inside a company. What are some of the lessons you think are there from the world of primary care for what they are? trying to do or just about to do so there's there's many and anna just riff and jump and do the usual thing that you do i mean what i didn't realize when we started our practice five years ago is that we were a bootstrap startup i didn't have the words but that's that's what we were it was my wife and I are family physicians we had zero patients the way that it works is you have to roster people or put them under your roster and then the government pays you an age and gender adjusted fee per year to provide all services within primary care and so we literally had to meet 2,000 people over the course of three years and build up a practice while we were hiring staff, maintaining staff, managing HR, which we've never done in our life, mitigating risk, 
dealing with governance agreements with other physicians, signing up a lease, building a building, like literally the building I'm sitting in was a pile of dirt three years ago. And so in hindsight, after talking to Anna and getting my like nighttime texting MBA in tech, I realized we were actually a bootstrap startup and we were using agile methods to test and understand how to support people in actually receiving care. And that the people we support, I think of as patients with my medicine hat, but when I switched to my business hat, they're customers with needs. And we just assumed that because people knew how to get care, that it was all just going to click and gel. And then people would just come in, they'd tell us their symptoms, we'd be like, you have this problem, here's these antibiotics or drugs or whatever. What we learned over time is we actually had to segment customers, we had to figure out what their needs are, we had to figure out our high users, our low users, who was generating more revenue, who was generating less revenue for us, how do we stack rank them and organize them, how do we delegate off to staff to have the lowest cost person provide that care. And so as Anna and I have been texting, as I've listened to podcasts from literally everywhere, I've been cobbling together this startup level knowledge. And I think I'll circle back to the comment that Anna left at the end of her introduction, which is humility. Um, that's the key skill. I think that really you have to have when you're starting a new venture, whether or not you understand the venture that you're starting. Like I thought I was going to sign up to be a family doctor. What I actually am is a small business that provides primary care to a community, but I didn't really get that. So the humility is really, really key. And the other key that goes with humility is it's not a ton of curiosity. Like you really just have to keep asking, but why, but why, but why is that happening? And why is this person upset? Or why does this person love this? And you have to keep testing and iterating. And none of that was ever clear to me because in medicine, we learn medicine. We don't learn any business whatsoever. And so my lesson for startups, one lesson for startups, is you may think you're in a business and you may think you know what you're going to do and you may think what you're you have your product and you've got your mission and your vision and your values but once you go out to the world and introduce that thing even though it seems very like medicine seems very obvious you're sick come here i fix you we go from there it may not be what people want and so you have to keep your ears on the ground to the population to the community to your environment and you have to be smart enough and agile enough to pivot even when it seems like the pivot doesn't make a lot of sense and you're like, but this goes against everything, but this is what the customers are saying. And you have to, again, be humble and curious and like, okay, we're, we're going to pivot and change. So one, one lesson, but there, there's just so much to, to unpack. And it's kind of funny looking back as a family doc. Now, I'm sure Anna, you've seen this kind of happen. Well, I think the, the flip of what Dan just said. So Dan's a guy highly educated, you know, thought he was, you know, a doctor, but really is a small business. It's a great way to, to kind of frame it. And I think for a lot of startup owners, and the reason April Dunford and I are friends and I just think she's a genius, is I think the the opposite. If you kind of take what Dan said and flip it the other way, so many startup founders are so in love with their solution and they tend to, to skew technical. And I've done a bunch of work with startups around actually selling the damn thing. So this thing that you've spent all this time and money and you probably have some really deep expertise. The reason that you were able to build it in the first place is because you have this deep expertise. And I watch over and over and over again, this lack of humility when it comes to actually doing product market testing and really not listening to people or really not ever being curious and asking any questions. And so they kind of spin just like if Dan wasn't Dan, he'd be in this office with paper charts going, how, why is this not working? Like, I don't know why this is not working because this is how doctors work on TV and I'm doing it that way and it's not working for me. 
I think there's a lot of startup founders that also spend like 80% of their budget on R&D. And when you say to them, okay, so you talk to your mom and your aunt and the lady down the street and your buddy from uni, and they all love this thing. But have you like, I used to say when I was at Communitech, get in your car, leave Waterloo. So Waterloo region in Canada is home to many, many great startups. There's this amazing culture. There's all these really fabulous people to help you. And it's, it's a double-edged sword. If you sit in that bubble and just keep absorbing all the positivity, it can be a trap. So it's get in the car, drive to Toronto, go talk to someone that you don't know who doesn't give a shit about you and pitch your product. Don't talk about it. Go pitch it. Go in there and like ask them if they pay money for it. And if you come home and no one in Toronto wants to pay money for it, you got more work to do. I, and we got to figure out what's wrong. Is it the product? Is it the marketing message? Like, is it the clients you're trying to address? Like, I don't know what the problem is, but you sing in Waterloo doing Revolution 27 of your technical stack is not the solution to the problem. That's an interesting thing, Dan, as well. In terms of one of the things that's interesting there when you're talking about your journey of getting the practice going is, I guess, there's a vision that you have at the start as to how it's all going to work. And then what you're describing there is the detail is where a lot of this thing happens in terms of how the journey of patients actually works, which member of staff you have doing which bits. I mean, what, are some, what have you learned through that experience? So I guess what Anna's describing there in a startup world is where it goes wrong quite often, I guess, where you're kind of very user-centered for about three weeks at the start and then try and sort of like leave that. You know, to, but was that, does that kind of reflect in the journey of building a practice or is it a different different journey in that context? No, it's very analogous. I think we use different language and different words because we like to think of ourselves as specialists in medicine. And so we go, well, that's not applicable because it's medicine. Medicine isn't business and business isn't medicine, but there's a lot of common lessons to be learned there. And really, it's a daily failure. Like something breaks every single day and so you have to become this very adaptable problem solver and i go home and i see my wife and i'm like we're just learning how to adapt we're learning patience and and how to adapt because there is constantly a problem and i think after the first two and a half years you realize that that is not the exception that is the norm and you you need to learn how to adjust that and then you also start to shift your priorities so when you're when you start you have your medical knowledge and you're like you know people aren't getting better they're coming back or they're getting upset because i don't know enough or I didn't prescribe them the right treatment, or I didn't put them on the right drug, or I didn't know enough about their drug plan, or I didn't know that this medication would interact with them. What you realize over time is that's actually a little bit irrelevant. Like you have to get the basics down so you're getting right condition to right drug class. But a lot of it is actually experience and positioning and understanding. Do they understand why they're coming? Do they actually understand the problem that they're having and why they're coming? Because how often, and I'm sure this is a universal phenomenon, people come in for one issue, you know, big toe problem, and they end up talking about their divorce or their trauma as a childhood or their screaming chest pain as they're leaving. And we always view that as a patient problem. Well, you know, the patient just left that for the end. And it's like, well, did they? Or is our experience framed in such a way that they don't feel safe to bring that up? They don't feel like they can voice their actual concern and problem. And maybe we're not configured in a way to necessarily solve that problem. So then how do we start changing our operation to meet the needs of our customers in essence? So it's, it's very interesting to see how you pivot from the medical expertise and, and just getting more medical expertise when you start to actually getting more strategic about your operation and thinking about the user experience really of your care. And we haven't even chatted about all the other pieces around our ecosystem because we're just the inflow. When you need to see a specialist, you need a test, you need blood work. 
those are all different pieces that then you have to think about in your ecosystem, how you're interacting with those partners and how you're being a good ecosystem partner and, and operating within that ecosystem. So it just kind of goes beyond that. Once you get your own operation figured out, now you're like, man, everyone around me is not ready. Okay. That's, that's a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because there's lots in that conversation. I was thinking as I was hearing that, and, and I, you'll, you'll know this as well, uh, from the kind of fintech and financial services innovation space is kind of this gloss of similarities there because again it's another sector where people tend to have an idea as to how the customer or the user should behave you know should behave and should be asking questions and then sometimes just treat the way that people actually behave as a problem rather than as a thing to design around absolutely i mean i think you know, right now there's this economic crisis and I don't think the right marketing message is you're not saving enough for retirement because if the problem we're trying to solve for is to have people save more money, prescribing like the perfect amount for you is this, because really we would like the number to be big. Like, let's just be real. We'd like that number to be big. So we're going to pick like maybe bigger than you actually need number because that's kind of what we'd like. But then if you flip it and you think, okay, so I'm sitting in my house going, not really saving for retirement. And I, I know that's bad. Like, I know I should. But I the guy who I reached out to to give me advice, I feel really ashamed. And I think that shame maybe is plays in medicine too. Like, I know that I should be doing something different. And I'm getting like the perfect advice, but I can't do the perfect advice because I got a car payment and my kid's going to university. And so like, I just can't do that. But if we're so hell-bent on the only path is this path and the amount of money is this, and if you don't save this, you're going to be eating cat food. Like, I don't think we're moving the mission of helping people because some's better than none. And like, just like medicine, starting, like starting down the right path is better than inertia. So, you know, I, I wonder, like we have all these technical tools, but sometimes we forget this desirability or human nature or how to actually encourage people to take the actions that we think are good for them whether they're good for us as a business or not is kind of secondary but especially in this economic crisis i keep seeing more and more of like all these people are worried well okay you're making them more worried by throwing it in their face that you know you're not alone everyone's worried it's like oh my god i just want a turtle stop talking to me don't want to have this conversation. Yeah, so I, I had a great example of that one. So there was a project I was working on that had some amazing designers and data guys on it, and it was a finance thing. And they had this their beautiful design for how they had this new interface that was going to make people manage their money better. You know, it's been done various times, but the, everyone in this team thought it was absolutely there. And then we put it in front of the various different user testing sessions. And there was one where this lady went through it all in detail. I flicked through it all. And then she burst into tears. And we were watching through a watching through a glass thing, and it was thinking, you know, especially because I was surrounded by designers that are all like, the, you know, the colors were lovely. Was there something? Was there something wrong in this design? You know, like we screwed this up. Uh, but then she was like, "Oh no, this is the story of my divorce." Oh, because there were the hotel bills where I stayed away for a few days. There was a bunch of uh, things that I. There was a bunch of payments that I made to people. Those things were happening, and the designers in the room were all like, "Hey, well, that's that means it's an edge case." Because she's like, this is unusual. This is not the kind of needs to be mapped out. Because like everyone is an edge case. And Danny must face into this all the time. Everyone's coming forward with like, yes, this, you must, I, I presume if you went through the data of your practice, there'll be a certain number of ailments that come up a high percentage of the time. But in everyone's lives, they come up in a very different circumstance. Like I say, like that's, that's what you're facing into all the time, I guess. Nick, I've literally told people when they come in and they say, no, no, my, my pain is the worst. You've never seen someone with a pain tolerance like me, or you've never seen someone with a rash like this, or you've never seen someone with chest pain. 
I've actually said everyone is an edge case. Okay. To them. And they're like, what are you, they're like, what are you talking about? I said, everyone thinks that theirs is like this unique edgy case. I said, but the reality is everything is kind of an edge case. There really doesn't feel like there is a normal distribution. And to your point, even though there's common ailments, it's the presentation and the manifestation that gets contextualized through their personal history, their family history, their life situation, their financial situation. Each one of those is a layer. Um, so to go back to the startups and founders, problems don't happen in isolation. And we often forget that. We go, okay, everything else being equal. Here's your problem. Here's my solution. What we don't do is we don't factor in the nuance of the everything because it's not equal. And people always start with that assumption because it's easier for design requirements, for raising capital, for generating seed rounds, all of that stuff. It's just easier to tell the simple straight story. It's hard to raise money in a chaos and say like, it's really, really chaotic, but, but trust me, there's enough signal that you're going to get a return on your investment. Like that's a harder thing to sell, but we see that all the time in medicine and you just kind of have to learn to say, okay, so if everyone's an edge case, how do we change our operation to make it feel customized, personalized? for you. And that's been the challenge that we've now had in, I'm going to say in the next five to 10 years, that's the challenge we're going to have. We know how to practice medicine. They know how we operate. It's not perfect, but it's as good as we can make it. So how can I make it the best experience for, you know, Nick, Anna, Josh, whoever, how can I make that the best possible experience? And that's the, that's the lessons we're, we're starting to learn right now because our tech stacks and our funding models are totally limited. So we're euchred on like having a really good tech stack where we can engage with people and I don't have infinite money to pay people to call everyone to give them a special experience. So I need to figure out how to make it special on a not special budget. So that's that's the next challenge. The one, you know, we started with kind of humility, but I think the other one and it I think there's a parallel to startups as well is this concept of trust. Like Dan and I were having this conversation about, you know, how do we flip it so it's not so provider centric that the model is a little more patient centric and the fear often in medicine is like oh god i have seven minutes like if i just let this patient run their mouth like i'm never gonna see all the, I'm, the waiting rooms full like i don't have time for this and you know and flipping it and saying how much do patients how much trust can you put in patients that they will self-identify they know you're busy. like listen we know doctors are busy it's not like patients don't know this and you know, there's a bunch of administrative doctors have to do, which is kind of ridiculous. But then there's a bunch of needs that patients have that often aren't met or run out of time or whatever. But how do we like flip it to say, you know, as a patient, I probably know if this is just a pharmacy like renewal versus no, there's like some big shit going on in my life. And I need I'm just going to need more than seven minutes. I, I had this conversation with Dan to say, I'm fortunate in that I'm fairly healthy. So you know, could I give my seven minutes? Like if I just really need a prescription renewal, can I gift my seven minutes back to my physician so they can spend 20 minutes with a diabetic doing nutritional counseling? Because the way that we like, they're like widgets and we allocate these widgets. And to Dan's point, they're edge cases. And quite frankly, I'd be happy just to have my prescription renewed. And it'd make me happier to know I gave someone like Dan seven minutes back because Dan I trust that Dan will use the seven minutes appropriately. And I trust that a patient that says, I'm going through this shit divorce, I'm drinking too much, my heart's racing, and I d you can't do that in seven minutes. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. 
To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. It's, it's an interesting thing as well, actually, because trust is an interesting piece in terms of for the white, because there's no profession that generates trust quite like medicine does, especially primary care. Uh, and I, I wonder, then, are you conscious of doing that in terms of now you've kind of gone through this process of thinking around the experience of interacting with your practice and things? Are you conscious of how you generate trust or is it something that's kind of assumed in the way you operate? No, highly conscious in terms of building trust. That's probably where I spend most of my time is actually in building trust so that when I call people and say, I don't have the ability to see you today, I'm going to see you tomorrow. Do you trust me that I've triaged this okay? Or do you trust me that I think the thing you're telling me is much more serious? Trust is is really, really essential. And I think when we talk about differentiators, that's the main differentiator between primary care and most other sectors in medicine because we have that longitudinal relationship over time. And the way that I view visits to the office is an investment, right? I, I've learned from the business side, there's nothing more precious than time. And I've heard people talk about, you know, what, what's really valuable is a time machine in people's lives, giving them more time back in their lives. And so trust has really been fundamental to that in having people place their trust in us with their most precious thing, which is their health. And so that's why I think we're able to do a lot of the the testing and experimentation and pivoting and iterating that we can, because people know and trust me that I'm always trying to make it better. When they go, why, why did you get rid of that old system that I loved? And now we've got to do this new system. You just have to trust me that I'm trying to make it the best experience possible. Let's draw that out a little bit, because actually there are lots of brands in our lives that you do have quite a long relationship to. And yet we don't have that much trust to them. So when you are building trust, like what are the steps you've taken to get to the point where you can ring me up and say, look, I'm going to disappoint you today because I can't have that uh, appointment I wanted to have, but I can, I'm going to trust in you that it's going to be okay and that tomorrow they will go ahead as planned. Yeah. So I, I think the way that the trust gets built is by doing what you're, what you say you're going to do. So I will get you in for a new visit appointment. Here's your time and I will be relatively on time. And if I'm behind, I'm going to apologize for being behind. I'm going to give you some context and explain why. If I need to run off, I'm going to tell you why. I'm not going to say I've got a meeting or a phone call. I'm going to tell you I have to get my kids at Taekwondo tomorrow. Like that's why I'm moving your appointment and you, you can let them know I'm going to get my kids at Taekwondo. That's fine. Um, and so those little interactions over time that seem very minuscule and are small comments in passing when you give people a window into your own humanity i think it allows them to say like wow this is a real person because i mean when i think of doctors from when i grew up they were like these not real people who kind of came in who felt me and listened and took measurements and said this is what you have what we try to do is a little bit different and i always tell people i say i will treat you like my family i will try and make the best decision i can for you based on what the information you've given to me so you have to be honest and forthright and forthcoming. And the more honest and the more information you can give me, the better care I can give for you. And it's that kind of reciprocal relationship. That's how I reinforce the importance of building trust across. And then on the side, I ride Peloton or started riding Peloton a year ago. And Anna knows this, but Dennis Morton, who rides on the bike, says, you know, I make suggestions and you make decisions. So I have a poster in our hallway that says that. And that's the other way that we build trust is a bit of a shared accountability, right? I make suggestions and recommendations. And you make decisions. And so I think giving people that autonomy over their care scares some people because some people just want to come and be told. They, they don't want to make any decisions. They don't want to be independent. They just want you to tell them. But for a lot of people, I think that builds a lot of trust. They go to Anna's point, wow, they, they trust me to tell them when this is serious and when it's not serious. So it's a series of little behaviors, discussions, relationships that get built over time. And I think this is where the human aspect of medicine comes in. Every single one is different. 
every single one is different and it's very individualized because I know not only who you are, I know what relationships you're in or not in. I know what your hobbies are. I know that you're a plumber, a welder, a CNC operator, a professor. And I personalize your care to say, you know, high blood pressure is just like plumbing. And then I give them a plumbing analogy or, you know, your neck pain from a nerve issue is just like a short wiring in a CNC. And I give them that little analogy. Those little things that seem very minuscule actually feel like real personalized medicine. So I may not know their genomics and all of their biochemistry data, and I can't, you know, take 10,000 data points and put it together in a plan, but I can give them a story or an analogy or an explanation that is very unique and personal to them. And that builds a ton of trust. And so when that happens, that's when people, I'm going to say, cut me a bit of slack and say, you know, we, we know it's been really crazy. You, you take your three days off and, and don't worry, we'll, we'll manage. I mean, this whole trust thing is so not transactional. Like if you think of the startup world, like if all you're trying to do is transaction convert, transaction convert, you just can't build any of that trust. And I think taking a longer view, like it, it doesn't have to be their whole life like medicine. And, you know, the bar of trust for a startup is not the same bar as, as there needs to be in medicine, right? But it's a relative bar. And if you can increase that bar of trust, so your customers go, I know every time this company calls me, they're not just trying to lick and stick a new product on top of me or slam me into some campaign. And they're listening to me. Like I sat with our call center and the best rep, um, they were doing all these disbursements from their investments. And lots of the reps did the job, right? They like listened. Okay, this is what you want. Okay, I'll cut you the check. These are the tax. But this is kind of um, what is going to be withheld. They answered all the questions and they did the job. One of the reps, I said, you are spectacular to this girl. All she did was say to every single person that called, it was December. She said, do you need this money right now? Or do you need this money to pay for your Christmas bills? Simple question. And nine out of 10 of them said, well, I don't need it now, but my visa is going to come in January and I'm going to absolutely need it in January. And she gave them advice and very human advice and said, then call back next month because if you call back next month and we do it in January, there's there's potentially no tax implication because you can put the money back over the course of the 11 months. If you take it now, it's going to generate a tax problem for you that you don't really need because you don't need the money till the end of January anyways. And and I'm sure in her world, her very micromanaged data world, she probably looked like the worst performer because she was not transacting like the other people were transacting, right? She was taking two calls where it maybe should have been one call. But I listened and thought, my God, the amount of trust she's engendering for the company is huge. And it's just one human question that she's asking. Yeah, it's so interesting as well, because I, I would uh, keep meaning to sort of go back through the data on this. But having done brand research for years and years and years, most brands, the key moment of truth is when you screw up in some way and it's how you respond. And if you respond well, you'll have a customer for a lifetime. Your airlines, you all know that. As airlines are your, your loyalty because when the flight didn't take off, they looked after you. And there's some that you'll never fly with again because on the flip side, it only happened once in 10 years. But when it did, you remember being stuck in the wrong city somewhere late at night. Uh, so so it's, there's a really interesting question here. I want to ask you both this question in a slightly different ways. So actually, Anna, just quickly to follow up on that, what are some of the things you think you've taken from the work you've been doing with Dan and your kind of interaction with health and that you've taken from that and you've started to apply in your wider innovation work? I think this much wider lens, like I think before some of the work that I did with Dan, it wasn't like I was a small minded thinker 
But I think really looking at problems from a much more macro systems view, like all the work we did in medicine, none of it was siloed. Everyone thinks it's siloed, but the minute you think that, it's like you're just fooling yourself. Because if you go a level up, it's like, you know, I joke with Dan and say, if we fundamentally changed our formulary at the insurance company, it would have an immediate effect on your emergency department. And if and and we saw during COVID, um, when the emergency department closed down, it had a direct and meaningful impact to the insurance industry. So we can pretend that like we're two solitudes and, you know, he does his thing and we I do my thing. But in fact, no, that's a lie. And I think for a lot of this innovation work, going up like 25,000 feet and kind of going, who are all my competitors or maybe not even my competitors, other people in this ecosystem and how how are we behaving in concert with each other? And if someone takes their ball and goes home, how does that affect me? Like, I don't care about this person that seems three degrees separated from me. But I do if they take their ball and go home, because all of a sudden that is going to have a meaningful impact on me. Pretty interesting. And Dana, I want to come back in a minute to some of the things you've learned from your journey of listening to podcasts and kind of going to the business world. But what are some of the things that you know intuitively, perhaps, is a, from the, coming from the medical world that you don't hear in the business world? You don't hear any of these podcasts. What are some of the things you think are like, you know, you, you, that your perspective gives you a different take on? So I think the thing that I've learned intuitively more than anything is that everything we do and our successes are built on our relationships. They're, they're built on relationships with people we serve or built on their our relationships with their family members who support them, not during the times that we see them. They're built with our relationships of people we work with and they're built on relationships with people in the system. And that was not really clear to me when I started because to Anna's point, I had assumed that there was just this system Right. And I was just going to plug in as a chip and be a primary care provider and do primary care and do what they told me and send referrals and wait for referrals to come back and just process work. And what I realized is care doesn't just happen automatically. It may happen at some point if we have a system, you know, that we do in that way. But I don't know as long as there's people involved that it'll ever function exactly like that. And a lot of it is relationships and, and trust ac across. And I don't actually think people understand that to the depth that they should like you really have to be able to look someone in the eye and have a conversation and be able to read them and understand their emotions their emotional state their goals that's that's something that i don't hear quite as prominently anywhere everyone kind of says it in passing to your point nick like what do you hear on podcasts everyone talks about it but do they really understand it in the way that i understand it because my job is just relationships it's it's managing my relationships with two thousand people and it's managing issues that people have either in their relationships with themselves, with other people. And those issues may be directly medical due to an illness, or they may be relational issues because of some other function. And I, I don't think that is pulled out quite as clearly. And if people focus on the relationships and to Anna's point, moved away from the technical side a little bit, I think they would get a lot farther, a lot faster. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I think in some ways, probably that, for instance, the design thinking community in business wants to be a doctor on the basis of they want to have this methodology they can come and apply remotely and therefore uh, heal organizations and heal business propositions and things in some way uh, because they see the relationship thing as somehow unprofessional. I don't know if I'm being over-egging that, but Anna, you're not in there. There's definitely a, there's a, there's a trait in some of the innovation community in business. There's like, we want to go and learn this methodology and processes and some new trends, and then we want to throw it into business and fix things. And we sort of underestimate the relationships with stakeholders or with customers. When we come in, like one of the 
biggest things in my work in this vein is to say to everyone I work with, can we have as much empathy for the people that we're trying to work with as we do for the users? Like walking into a group of actuaries and being like, oh my God, they're a bunch of actuaries are never going to get this. It's like, okay, you're, what are you doing? You, you can't start from there. You cannot start from there. How about this? I flipped it and said, are you interested in learning in th over the next three days how to build actuarial tables? Because that's what we're asking them to do, but the reverse. And they're here. And so I don't think we'd be there. Like, So check yourself a little bit in terms of what you're expecting and try to meet people where they are. And don't be humble in your own craft. Like, Don't be some guy with the spectacles and the black turtleneck and like, I'm all knowing. No, you're as not all knowing as they are about something just very different. We totally underestimate the concept of readiness. We just assume that if it's good enough, if the service is good enough, whatever that is, that people are just going to show up because that's what everyone tells you, right? You you haven't thought about the problem enough if people just aren't showing up and weaving their hands and saying, I want it. But there is an element of readiness and timing and you can't quite put your finger on it. So you have to really pick your spots. I The analogy that I have in my head is like two people playing double dutch and you're like waiting to jump between the ropes. That's the thing. Like you could jump in at any time, but there's there's timing involved and you have to be really aware of your surroundings. And I think that's why the relationship piece is important because there's very subtle cues in our relationships that tell you I'm ready versus I'm not ready. And I, I think those two things together, like you can't really downplay them because they impact a lot of failure. And I don't think people have the awareness to realize they failed because they just mistimed it or the, the readiness was. It's really interesting, actually, because hearing you speak in terms of the things you've, um, one, hearing how deep your journey's been of reaching out for these different influences and uh, your podcasts and books and things, but also the bits that you're picking up and bringing back into your medical practice. So these things around, ideas around readiness, the curiosity, the humbleness, and some of the people you're referencing actually speak more to some of the brand and communication world, which is interesting. So what are the things you brought into, the, you know, so you're saying you're actually using some sort of the logic of uh, positioning and the way that you're walking people through the experience of a diagnosis and things. So is it, what, what, what things are you applying in your in your practice now? Yeah, so um, probably, okay, I'll give you one of the most common examples in practice. So starting a medicine for cholesterol is a big deal, right? I think we all have in the back of our mind at some point, my risk of heart attack and stroke is going to go up and someone's going to say, come take Crestor, Lipitor, whatever drug. Um, and that statin class is an interesting class because you have a segment of users who will just, okay, it's it's high. I'm going to take it. No questions asked. I don't care what the side effects are. You have another segment that goes, no way in hell, never, ever, ever am I going to take that med because I've read all these horrible things on the internet. And it looks terrible and I'm not going to do it because it's going to harm me. And then you have all these people in the middle who were like, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm a little bit undecided. I'm a little bit uncertain um, to reference April's work. And, and they're in that indecision space. And you actually have to help move them through that indecision. You have to help them understand, are they undecided because they're scared? Are they undecided because they don't want to die of heart? Like, what, what is that rationale? And so from a communication standpoint, we really try to simplify the language for them so that they understand what that risk is for them in a concrete fashion. And we don't necessarily force a decision. So I used to have these long 30 minute consults, which from a financial standpoint are terrible because you just can't bill enough to make up for that 30 minutes that you spent with someone. And I didn't convert anyone. Conversion being filling a statin and having them take a statin. Where I actually became successful was in saying, so your risk is like 16%. It's not low. It's in the intermediate risk category. My medical guidelines would tell you unequivocally you need to start on something. I'm going to tell you 
that I know you and I know you hate meds because you're on no other meds and you're 60 and you work out five times a week for 30 minutes. You don't go to McDonald's. You eat relatively healthy. So like, I think you're probably okay too. But then I ask them a question. I say, when you invest your money with the banker and they tell you, are you like a risky person or are you a more conservative person? What do you tell the banker? And they go, I'm conservative. I say, okay, you're going to start the statin because you're afraid of risk. So we're going to put you on the statin. And they go, okay, that makes sense. Cause they've already made a decision on their finances in that way. And if they go, nah, I'm a ris risky person. Like my portfolio is all over the place. I'm like, okay, you're going to let it ride. <laughs> we're going to re-stratify your risk in a year. And so it's a combination of like personal experience, positioning, individual factors. And then you've got the risk calculator that gives you some objective metric. And you put all of that together from a sales perspective. And then you, you, you know, generate the sale. You either have them start a sat and don't, but in medicine, it's, it's different because I don't get rewarded for having someone on a statin or not on a statin. I get rewarded by having that person trust that I've offered them the right information. So to go back to your thing about how do you build trust? That's an example. I don't force people into that. I have a very real conversation about risks and benefits and I individualize it. And I've gotten that pitch down to about like four minutes now. So I can just do that over the phone and say, okay, so we've talked about this for a number of years. You're now at the decision point and this is where we're going to go A or B. And all you have to decide at the end of this call is yes or no. And if you don't decide, that's okay. We're going to hang up. We're not going to talk for 20 minutes. And if you have questions, you call me back and we'll, we'll chase it. So that's an example of how I would kind of put all of that knowledge into one little encounter. And then you just multiply that by 30 and five days a week and all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah. Lots of practice and lots of experimentation. Like yeah. lots. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that kind of curiosity and the kind of humbleness comes across in that. It's a kind of constant process of learning. Even in your case, after quite a lot of training, but it still becomes a learning process, you know, as a, as an interesting thing. And and just quickly, I mean, also, Anna, you actually referenced before that one of the things you took was actually realizing how some of the work you do in the day job, if you like, in the more kind of financial services world has an impact on health. These things are actually much more connected than you, than you think. Um, if people listening to this who work in some of those sectors, I guess actually almost any sector that is working with individuals, with users, there's a link to, to health. I mean, how, firstly, uh, you know, are there ways to think about that? And secondly, is there anything from the way you got involved during the COVID example that you think other people could, could borrow from as well? Like, how do you start to take that realization into the way you do things? I think we just did a session and, and Dan was kind enough to present with another colleague and talk to a bunch of um, experience and UX designers about the total patient journey. So we see that patient as a member, Dan sees that person as a patient, the government seem, sees that person as a taxpayer, but they're one person that has a group of, of needs and interests across the entire spectrum. And I think for a moment, some of these UX people's brains just went, Bill, when they, we started talking about, you know, the patient comes into my office and I don't have line of sight. You know, they're privileged people that have access to pharmacare and access to paramedical services. And as a physician, my my goal is their health. And if they have those sorts of things to leverage, I would like to guide them in how to do that. But we don't make that easy for a physician because they very much are two solitudes. But at the end of the day, that person, if they get sicker, is not good for the taxpayer, not good for the physician, not good for the insurer. So if we think about how to work together, we all win. Because I have this slide where I'm like, the government just wants you to pay income tax. Your employer wants your butt at work. Your doctor wants you to be healthy. And you, like more than anyone else in that whole pyramid, you want to just feel good. And like, you want to understand how to navigate all these things. And it, we've not made it 
easy for people. And I think there's a lot of duplication and a lot of either over-treatment or under-treatment because we don't think of this like one big journey. We think of it like we do this, family medicine does this, the government does this, which is kind of how it works. But that's not the optimal way to have it work. Not the optimal way. And I think actually in a weird way, what this conversation is quite good evidence of is the weird uh, connections that can happen just from sharing the problem sometimes or sharing a half idea like it was in this thread that has turned into this whole thing. So Thirsty generalism. It all started with thirsty generalism. Thirsty generalism, making t-shirts of it. And I don't want to put any any pressure on people that comment underneath this video when it comes out. But uh, like uh, it could turn into something else. The last one turned into a podcast. So the next one can turn into something else. Maybe a book. Maybe uh, some kind of uh, road movie. Who knows? He knows where it goes. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.